0: Hello, everyone. Today I'm joined by Steve Spritzer, the co-founder of uh, Petrichor and the CEO. Steve Spriser um, has a Bachelor in Information Systems from uh, the University of Illinois, where he, also got his, where he also got his master in Library and Information Systems and his Master's in Agronomy and Crop Science. Petrichor is the company that mod- modernizes supply chain management and commodity trading for agribusiness. It enables firms with a digital platform for job-relevant tasks centered on trade execution, supply chain visibility, financial management, and regulatory compliance. Prior to starting his own company, Petricor, Steve worked at um, BCG Boston Consulting Group. And prior to that, he started his own company. Um, Steve, this is a pleasure. I'm very grateful for your time and thank you for being here.
1: Great. Well, thank you, Joe, for hosting and, and for having me on your podcast.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, one thing I've noticed about your career arc and prior to you starting at PetraCorp is that you've been an entrepreneur in the sense that, I mean, you have started your own companies and you have um, created your own trail path. Do you tell me that um, before you, if you look back to yourself when you were younger, do you ever envision yourself being an entrepreneur?
1: I, that's a great question. I would say that I, um, I wanted to do something entrepreneurial since I was in high school, but I never really quite knew what that would be. Uh, when I was in high school, uh, in order to help my family save money to go to college, I'd taken a job as a golf caddy at a local country club, uh, not far from where I grew up. And, uh, had gotten to uh, caddy for several country club members there that had been very successful entrepreneurs. And that I think had put a little bit of a, uh, the entrepreneurial bug in me of wanting to go do something and create something tangible uh, that, that I would have been intimately involved with, but it, it wasn't even until I got to college and really after college, I I had any idea of what that would look like. Uh, But I would say at at a formative age is when I started thinking about that. But it took a lot of conversations with with mentors and with coaches that I had and people in my network to really solidify what are the things I wanted to work on uh, or spend uh, a good chunk of my career working on.
0: So did. So from what I take, ag wasn't like on your, on the forefront of your mind when you were younger? <laughs>
1: Not at all. Uh, people ask me, did you grow up wanting to either be a farmer or grow up wanting to be an entrepreneur? And uh, you know, I am by no means uh, that tall of a person now, but now, I was one of the tallest kids in my grade, growing up in the Chicago area in the 1990s. What did I want to do? I wanted to be like Mike, <laughs> um, and and you know, basketball was not going to be in in uh, uh, professional basketball was not going to be in, in uh, a viable career path. But it was when I got to college uh, that I'd been in a lecture by a University of Illinois alumnus by the name of Tom Siebel. And he had been talking about how, uh, as a very successful tech entrepreneur, his perspective was that, that uh, this was in the late 2000s, so uh, 12, 13 years ago, uh, that the era of building software companies that were pure play software companies, so technology for the sake of technology, um, uh, while it wasn't over we were hitting we were hitting diminishing marginal returns on that so if you look at that first big wave of the information age uh the the companies like microsoft and cisco and oracle and uh ibm that in their heyday and then they're still relevant now uh they really revolutionized how how we as as society interact with one another and laid that foundation for several iterations of of internet-based companies. But in in Tom Siebel's view, the next 30 to 40 years, if you were a, a college graduate, his advice was to find a sector where you would be able to use technology for something that would be a a constant and would be a large enough societal need, which in his view, the, the big four clusters or themes were uh, food, water, health, and energy. And he based it on, on, on saying, look, if you look at climate change and if you look at population growth, these are things that, that, that we're going to have more people and it's going to be in an uh, increasingly warmer world with, with more volatile uh, weather due to climate change. How do we go about using technology to address that and, and to uh, and to be better stewards of our planet with more people uh, in the world? And so that was a really formative experience for me of, of hearing him talk about that. And it put some things in perspective. And from there, I, I wound up having a, a really great opportunity to work under two professors while I was at the University of Illinois. Uh, one with a little bit more of a um, uh, enterprise software bent, so uh, healthcare informatics, uh, wound of working for his uh, son, uh, who was a very successful healthcare entrepreneur, uh, and another professor who, his research focused on uh, subsistence marketplaces. So uh, market interactions where individuals were, were living at a subsistence income uh in places such as rural india uh rural uh locations in, in east Africa, and uh that was my foray into agriculture was working um uh, uh with low literate entrepreneurs and farmers in south central Uganda. It was not on a uh fifteen hundred acre farm here in the United States. Um, it wasn't on a farm over in Europe. It was, uh, it was in the middle of the bush in Uganda, but the experience that I took away from that was that even in those cases, uh, the, in many cases, the, the farmers in Uganda, uh, when you looked at what, where their products were going, uh, where their, uh, where their output was going, it was going all around the world. And so for me, as someone who had an interest in global trade, in economics, in international business, this is fascinating to see. And that, despite the fact that I spent the first several years of my career after college working in in healthcare and, and specifically in digital health, there was a a second conversation that I had while I was in graduate school, uh, building search engines, uh, that I had with a, um, a an uh, agricultural economist who was a faculty member at the University of Illinois, and we were doing a research project on uh, economic development for the city of Chicago, and as part of that, we were looking at building a uh, a technology cluster in how do you create a, a sector specific startup ecosystem? So how do you how do you take uh, what made Silicon Valley work, or Route One Twenty Eight outside of Boston, or Research Triangle in North Carolina, uh, these different places? What are the things that Chicago had going in favor, right? And in Chicago and the Midwest, we we have a lot of, of opportunities for ag tech. Yeah, I remember sitting in, in this this professor's office, and he was one of the um, one of the pioneers of, of the ag tech space. Uh, he wrote a book back in the nineteen eighties called "Computers and Farming," way ahead of, of when other people were talking about these topics. And so, uh, this professor really was an expert on the topic. And the thing that he said to me that, that that I remember ten years later was. Um, he said, Steve, we talk a lot about drones on farms and robotics and and um, field mapping and, and GIS and all these different applications, right? He said, look, you're a runner. When you go run through the farms south of campus in Champaign County every fall and every spring, you see trucks hauling stuff on and off of those farms. And it could be inputs that are coming out of those farms, such as fertilizer, uh, or it could be grain coming off of those farms that's going to a, uh, either to a mill or it's going to an elevator. Uh, And in history, goes, now I know people talk about that stuff going on off farms. Someone should look more at the supply chain. And that little nugget got planted in my head. And it wasn't until a couple of years later that I really acted on that and, and spent several years working on supply chain topics while at uh, BCG. But I'd always had that idea in the back of my mind that that someone needs to to think about the supply chain, not just what's happening on the farm, but once you grow a product, what happens off the farm? And so um, I, I've spent probably the last eight to nine to ten years looking in particular at ag food and ag supply chain uh and so it's been a fascinating topic uh it it, weaves together a lot of different areas of ag but uh uh, my very long-winded answer to your question is that i i've had a very non-linear career uh but then again i think a lot of people that come into ag do so through varying paths it could be that they started with a pharmaceutical company and then joined the life sciences arm of uh, a company like um, a Bayer or Corteva uh, or a similar company or they spent some time in another area like in trucking and they got into ag because of logistics there or they were a commodity trader in another space and got into ag through that path so I don't think there's any I don't think there's any standard path to come into the industry and that's part of what makes it so fascinating.
0: It is. It is. And it's one of the most welcoming industries. And um I kind of relate to that because my entrance the way I entered I found about the I found out about this industry it was very much like you but with my way um I was kind of an athletic kid and I had dreams of uh making it to the league at least. <laughs> But um, I tore my ACL playing rugby, and that kind of um put a damper on my athletic uh, dreams. And I remember the summer before um going to co- the summer before going to college, I wasn't too sure what I was going to major in or what I was going to do. But I was working on this farm, and there was this one moment where, like you know, the light bulb moment where everything clicks. Like, oh, this might be the thing for me. Um, so at the farm I worked at, um, it was back it was in Zambia, so. We would transport um hogs. It's like the border between Zambia and Congo. And um, there was this, it was at a town and the Congo people from Congo would come and buy hogs from us. So just seeing how agriculture was global, and just like you, just seeing how agriculture in the developing world affected everything on a global scale, like in my case and like in that in the miniature scale, it still impacted me and um it kind of made me more interested in ag. And um, I kind of wanted to see how it would affect um, the years to come, understanding that populations will increase, cities are gonna grow, especially in Africa, Um, how that's gonna affect the food supply, how that's gonna affect um, how we grow and how we meet demand. So um, yeah, that's how I ended up at ISU. So I can relate to um, your story of how, like it wasn't a traditional path into the industry
1: I think you hit on a really great point, though, which is if we go back to those four themes that that Tom Siebel talked about when I was at his lecture: food, water, health, and energy. The food and agriculture really the one of the common themes across all of them, right? So, in terms of water usage uh, and making sure that we're being stewards of of our water usage as it relates to agriculture, especially in uh, environments and, and locations where where it's either uh, becoming more arid uh, or ensuring high high water quality and, and less water pollution, uh, health, uh, and the the numerous connections between uh, food policy and what we eat and how that relates to health and, and human health, uh, and then also energy and and the the connections there in terms of both. Uh, reducing carbon emissions, but also uh, where where there are opportunities to make the industry itself uh, more efficient, uh, and 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 things that we're even seeing now in terms of uh, uh, alternative energy uh, having a larger role in, in the the uh, uh, rural communities here in the U.S. and elsewhere, whether that's wind power or solar power or biofuels. Uh, so it, there's a lot of these these themes that, that seem to intersect, and that's, that's I think, what makes it so fascinating, whether you're in uh, uh, South Central Africa, or whether you're in East Asia, or whether you're on a farm in Canada, uh, there's so many different complexities in how you can look at the industry, and and, and that's what makes it fascinating.
0: And like one common thing I noticed between um, the Western world and the developing world is this need you touched on, you touched on it, this need for efficiency, trying to make how we produce our food more efficient, how we grow our food, how we meet demand, how we supply it more efficient. You're kind of seeing this intersection, especially in the U.S., how we're trying to bridge the gap of bringing the internet to rural areas um, and rural areas in the, um, in the States of how we can supply them with internet, how we can make their production more seamless, more efficient. And in Africa, you're seeing the same thing. Um, over the summer, I was buying grain from local farmers and I'll I'll always remember this because um at the time though it's in you've been you've you've lived in rural Africa so you know carrying cash hard cash isn't the smartest of things to do um, (laughs) the way way I would pay the farmers was through mobile money payments Mm -hmm. but then um you had they had the mobile money payments companies had limits on how much you could pay people a day. So it was working well, but the more people I started buying from, the more limits I started facing. But it just made me realize like you're seeing, I mean, it could develop into something. You're seeing this thing of where um, supplying farmers like like, the intersection of the internet and um, the digitalization of ag, finance, it's all coming together bit by bit by bit. And you're kind of seeing it in the States with um in the production side, on the production side. So I know your company specializes in that. So can you tell me what you saw from your experience when you were working in Africa and how that impacted um where you are now?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I, I think that there are a lot of interesting dichotomies between how um how different stakeholders interact, depending on, on geographically where they are. So in East Africa, mobile money with like M-Pesa was the standard uh, for how transactions were done between a farmer and an off taker that, that could be uh, either a trader or an independent broker, often on a motorcycle going out or a bike going on business farms um however there were often uh there's often limited it infrastructure further down the supply chain in many of those countries so like where we work we create cloud-based systems and workflows uh for what we call originators which are the primary processors it could be a cocoa factory or a, um, a palm oil mill or uh, a grain mill in these different places to connect them with the different traders and merchants that sit even farther down the supply chain. Whereas in the US, um, we're blessed with, with, uh, with, with having oftentimes much better technology uh, on an individual farm, uh, and 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 notwithstanding the fact that we we need need to have more broadband access and things like that, but what's interesting is that despite the fact that we have huge five hundred thousand dollar pieces of machinery that with auto steer can effectively drive themselves, uh, it wasn't until fairly recently, as in the last couple of years, that if I as a farmer showed up to a grain elevator, uh, even today. I'm often getting a paper ticket that, that has my, my uh, payment information on it and, 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 and a record of the transaction. And so there are a lot of these interesting dichotomies where it's like, well, how is it that a farmer on four hectares of land in Uganda is using technology that's, that's, that leapfrogged and is more advanced than a farmer with 5,000 acres here in the U S and I think when you start to look at the different systems in these different value chains and supply chains, one of the common elements that we saw was that there was a desire to have better unified systems of record so that if you are a food manufacturer and you are sourcing a whole bunch of different uh, raw materials, you're sourcing grain or you're sourcing palm oil or you're sourcing sugar cane or you're sourcing cocoa, that the various actors that sit upstream from you in the supply chain back through to those originators and primary processors, that everyone is on a, a similar uh, and, and, and unified system of records. And that's really important, not just as it relates to efficiency, but also to global trade. And the the uh, one of the fun things that I like to think about um, is there was an essay that came out probably about 60 or 70 years ago now called iPencil. And it was about how no one in the world could build a pencil from scratch. And you're like, okay, well, it's a pencil, how hard could it be? Well, you have to go mine the graphite, you have to find a rubber farmer to make the rubber for the eraser. You have to go get the um, uh, mold, the metal for the connector between the, the wood and the rubber. Uh, you have to go uh, get a saw and and and, uh cut down the wood to to make the the wooden part of the pencil and that's all the true pencil right now let's apply that to uh a chipotle burrito or a big mac at mcdonald's or even a cup of coffee right the the, the journey that that coffee bean takes from a farm in colombia or in ecuador or in um uh, uh in, in ethiopia there's a lot of steps that are involved there And our mission at Petrichor is to make it much simpler for a food brand or for a commodity trader to build, scale and manage all of that raw material visibility for their supply chain. Because in our view, that the way that we can really empower the industry is to make that global trade for these agricultural commodities easier and to increase that market access opportunity for these exporters whether you're in west africa or in central america or in southeast asia and so our software helps underpin a number of these different processes as it relates to risk management and financial management and the transformation of those raw materials into uh, a processed good or into a finished uh, product that you might buy at a grocery store or consume at a restaurant.
0: So do you try and create visibility for your customer to allow them to see where um, their commodity, their cocoa, their corn, their palm olive is coming from to where it's going?
1: Exactly right. So we do that in a couple of different ways. One of which is the physical visibility, which is where is my product at in the world right now? So if you or I go and order a, um, Of socks on Amazon or on Kohl or JCPenney or wherever you shop for clothes. Uh, If if you go buy that right now, uh, in the next 24 hours, you're going to get some sort of email notification where you can track that package. Now, when I buy a pair of socks, it's maybe 12 to 15 bucks, maybe 20 bucks, right? If you're including tax in there. And I can tell you where in the world that shipment is well the problem is is that when we're dealing with huge shipments of, of raw materials uh like in cocoa uh if i'm a food manufacturer i might be buying several hundred thousand dollars worth of cocoa in a year or if i am a uh if i'm a beer manufacturer and i need hops for for my beer or i need wheat right I'm buying a lot of that, like millions of dollars worth per year. I don't necessarily know when that's going to show up at my warehouse or my factory. And so what we do is, is we connect the data streams coming in from the various logistics providers so that you as a trader or as a uh, uh, supply chain manager or procurement manager at a food manufacturer or similar um, industrial goods manufacturer, can see where my where my commodities are at in the world right now. And then in addition to that physical visibility, we marry that and integrate that with what we call financial visibility. So that in our view, we we like to think of it as integrated agribusiness management, which is if I'm buying hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars worth of these raw materials there's a lot of financial risk attached to that as well. And so often what these firms will do is they will take out futures contracts or they will manage their risk uh, in the financial markets. And so what we do is we help them make better decisions around uh, what what their financial position is in any given point as it relates to their physical uh, inventory and where their goods are at in the world right now. And then finally, we create views so that um, their staff are able to manage workflows easier as it relates to the documentation and coordination of various parties uh, upstream in that supply chain. So how much production or inventory do my suppliers have on hand right now if I get a really big order coming in from one of my customers? So it's really a fascinating space to play in there are a lot of moving parts and our goal was to simplify this so that uh, these food manufacturers and agribusinesses can focus on running their business and not on uh, spending huge amounts of time worrying about uh, did I manage my risk appropriately or did I uh, have a shipment that I ordered that might not arrive uh, until 30 days late or 60 days late and I'm not going to know that until I get
0: a late notice. It's funny you talk about um the supply chain issues and how like your company helps solve that, make it more visible, allows um, um manufacturers and these big agribusiness companies to, lo- to see where they are, where their um, goods are in the value chain, what their financial position is, and how that's going to affect them. because in one of my ag business classes we've we've been talking about how a lot of these big ag business firms, your Walmarts, your Krogers. Big uh, manufacturers are trying to streamline their operations with digital efficiencies, and um one of the things we've talked about is um, how they're trying to cut out the middleman and like how like companies like Walmart create these big super centers where um their goods would be able to be docked into like where they're a- where they're sold at. So I guess having like a platform like yours must help them out a lot. A go-to platform. Yeah.
1: It- and it's it's interesting because this is a topic that, especially during the pandemic, has become a lot more uh, talked about. Which is that for the last several decades, a lot of the focus from Wall Street was this concept of efficiency and return on equity. And so what you end up having is companies that that invested a lot in just in time supply chains or just in time manufacturing that this is how Dell computers built its supply chain, that really gave it an edge back in the 1990s. The problem with that though, is that when you have a demand shock, so everyone is locked down during the pandemic, they're not spending what they were on uh, services, they're buying goods, they're going off to the grocery store more, uh, or they're, they're buying a lot of stuff off of Amazon. Well, companies, that prioritizes return on equity, we're not sitting on huge inventories. And so that created a lot of these supply chain shocks that we saw with with um, the, the the mismatch between cargo ships and containers on, on different sides of the ocean. Factories in, in, in China that literally could not churn out products fast enough for demand, whether it was in Europe or whether it was in the US. And so in, in in the agri-commodity space, that's also been true. And so one of the things that we are starting to see more of now is companies starting to prioritize more around storing inventory and investing in inventory management. Well the problems with that are I need to balance what I have on hand with, again, my financial and risk management uh, with my logistics management. And so there's an opportunity for companies like what? What we're building a Petrocor to, to help these companies as it relates to global trade so that they can mitigate that risk of a supply chain shock and have more advanced visibility so that uh, they know where they should be steering their product uh, at any given point, either to a different production facility or to uh, a different geography based on uh, data and not just based on historical intuition.
0: With uh with COVID you just brought up and um, the supply crisis in Los Angeles, do you see mm-hmm. do you see this do you see supply do you see supply and agriculture becoming more regional as companies strive to be more independent and less independent and less dependent on um, international events affecting them.
1: That's a great question. And and to be honest, I don't have a clear answer on that yet for how that is specifically going to shake out in in agriculture. Uh, One thing in the manufacturing of things like um, consumer goods or electronics or or, uh, one of the big topics back in in 2020 was uh, around how we needed uh, more PPE production here in the U.S. for things like masks. Uh, agriculture has some limitations there. Uh, we, we can't feasibly grow cocoa in the United States. There's only certain regions where you can grow rice in the United States. Uh, I am probably not going to have a citrus farm in North Dakota. Uh, there, there are constraints there around not just soil type, but around climate and 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 the amount of sunlight and growing degree days and, and all things that, that an agronomy student or, or, or agronomist would, would be familiar with. So I don't see global trade diminishing, but I do think that when you look at countries that uh, have gone through food shocks or famine, they're absolutely going to be more protective of their production. Uh, And we're seeing this now some of the effects of that uh, in Ukraine, which is a uh, given the 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 war there right now between Russia and Ukraine, that is one of the most fertile and productive uh, regions in the world for things like wheat, Uh, while you have other countries in the world like Yemen that are almost 100% dependent on uh, imports for their grain supply and so there, there's going to be, I think, these periods whether it's a uh, whether it's war or whether there is a natural disaster like uh, a hurricane uh, or a uh, other events uh, that there's going to to be government policy that's going to impact uh, trade policy in many of the, these regions, and so. I think that to the extent that this impacts the agribusiness space in terms of companies in the private sector, things that companies are gonna want to do is make sure they have more redundancies in their supply chain so that they are not just looking at um, importing from one country or from one region, but diversifying their supply chains so that uh, as it relates to either key ingredients or key commodities that they're looking to source uh, or sourcing of raw materials, that you are lowering the risk of a supply chain shock. If for some reason there is difficulty getting product from uh, from a particular point of origin, uh, I don't think we have a clear answer yet on on exactly what that's going to look like. But it, it's becoming more topics that executives and these these businesses are thinking about and prioritizing uh, because everyone that went through this that worked in the supply chains during the last two to three years during the pandemic, uh, this has been top of mind for them. And now as things are slowly starting to normalize with global trade, it's becoming more of a topic, uh, that we can spend some time planning strategically instead of just being in crisis mode.
0: It's interesting you bring that up because, um, countries with Ukraine at the moment with their conflict thresher, Ukraine's one of the biggest um, exporters of wheat. Now it's kind of mm-hmm. hard to anticipate um, when a global, like a global event is gonna happen. So how do you make sure you're keeping an eye on your clients' supply chain, knowing, being able to add value to them, knowing, hey, um, they might, you might need to use that redundancy. So how do you do that? Because it's kind of hard to anticipate when a global event is going to happen? So how do you make sure your client knows, keeping your client informed that they may need to use their redundancy or backup plan?
1: Great question. There's different ways that we think about that. And then I'll talk through what some others in the industry are doing too. Uh, In our case, we build software that enables those originators and primary processors that might be in a location like Ukraine or they might be in a location like uh, Uganda or Brazil uh, or Argentina or Mexico to provide production and inventory numbers downstream to their end use manufacturers or end use customers uh, if they so choose. So it creates that two way information flow Uh, that gives these entities that sit downstream a little bit more real-time updates in terms of activities that are happening way upstream from them so that way they're not waiting to hear about this from their first tier of the supply chain that could be like a a commodity trading company they're able to get visibility into that second and third tier uh going back closer to origin there and that's incredibly valuable because even if it's a couple days or or a week the, the faster you can get that visibility, the better. There's other companies out there, um, Grow Intelligence is one, uh, GRO Intelligence, uh, that they use geospatial data along with sifting through and analyzing uh, hundreds of thousands of trillions of data points on uh, uh, estimates that are coming out from various agricultural agencies. So the USDA uh, or various other uh, government bodies uh, in other countries around the world to help get very granular estimates of what production is going to look like, what yields are going to look like. So that way, if there is a drought, uh, we can get an estimate for what what crop production and what yields might look like. Uh, in a region, whether that's West Africa or whether that's Eastern Europe, or what are the ways that if uh, if farmers in Ukraine miss planting season here in the next couple months, how is that going to impact where grain prices might fall? If countries like the U.S. Uh, have to tap into stockpiles uh, that we have of grain to 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 move things around, so. There's a number of different companies that, that approach this from different lenses. Some of them like grow that, that are a little bit more tied into what I'll call macro-level data uh, and, and, and uh, high-level supply chain data. In others, it's more like what we do, where it's, it's tied to a specific company's supply chain, and it's a little bit more on, uh, on, on micro-level data. Uh, I think you need both approaches. Uh, because different stakeholders in the value chain and supply chain are going to have different needs at a given point. But the more real-time you can make that information, whether it's very high level or whether it's granular, you're going to help these decision makers as they think about, okay, I need to go source from this region in the world because it's not looking likely, even if this conflict ends, that we're going to have enough uh, exports coming out of Ukraine until 2023. So, uh, there's a lot of opportunity to embed real time visibility further into these supply chains and reduce uh, that, that, that key supplier risk that's often prevalent in, in many of these commodity supply chains.
0: How, impo- <clears throat> how important is uh, relationship building being for your company in terms of just um, establishing relationships with the originators? in those countries that might be in Ukraine, Brazil, or um, Uganda, and just um, establishing relationships with the companies that need to know what's going on with their supply chain?
1: Uh, incredibly important. And, and that's both from a, um, a sales perspective for us, but also earning their trust, right? And on the sales side, it's, our software is not cheap. Uh, we do not compete on price and so we need to have a, a a relationship built with many of these companies on either side of the of the supply chain either endpoint whether that is on the the um uh manufacturer and, and consumer products side or on the origination side uh to earn their trust that hey this is software that we would be willing to uh to procure beyond that it's about earning and re-earning their trust because. Uh, We're functioning as a pretty key uh, and core part of their workflow and their business. And so making sure that we have those relationships and that we continue to, to, to build features and new modules for our product that add value for those companies uh, is incredibly important, given that uh, in many of these cases, we become a pretty mission critical part of how they manage their supply chain.
0: Yeah, I assume so. I just want to know, like, when did you feel like it was, um, you had a hit in your hands when you felt like it was going to work out? Because I assume um, starting out, start when you first started off, um, it must've been very turbulent for you in the sense of like, you never know if like your platform's going to work for your customer. Is it going to work on the origination side? Um, I don't know if you can talk about that.
1: Yeah. Well. I I still to this day don't know if it's gonna work or not. Uh, I think that that's one of the upsides or downsides of being an entrepreneur is you're always paranoid uh, about uh, making sure that you're delivering value. uh, Is is the team executing fast enough on the goals that we need to? uh, And so I think there's always a bit of um, making sure that we're, we're moving in the right direction and holding our team to really high standards. However, I think there's there's definitely certain points and in, in, in inflection points around. Okay, this went from idea DNA a napkin to this is something more than that. I think the first one was when um, we had a very well-regarded industry executive who uh, said, "Yeah, I would pay for this," and um, he 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 offered us a sales contract at a very, very attractive price. Uh, and, and that for us is a really good indication that if someone of his stature is willing to pay for it, then we can continue to build out things that are going to add a lot of value there. Uh, and that's a really good validation. But then as we get into further conversations, it's okay. These are problems that are just being faced in his supply chain but are being faced in other commodity supply chains as well and so you start to see that repeatability uh, as it relates to this is a problem faced by a number of different parties and stakeholders all along the value chain and I don't even think we fully understand how big of an opportunity it is yet other than that um, our, our ability to, to deliver value here is really what's going to to dictate how how large or enduring of a company uh, we can build, and uh, so I think it's really humbling for us uh, to be able to to get to work with with these organizations on on really mission critical parts of of how they run their business, and um, uh, every conversation that we hear uh, the frustrations from these executives, it's really unfortunate in some sense. But it's also, um, it's very validating that, uh, that there, this, this is a problem and that our solution can provide a lot of value to the, those firms.
0: Um, yeah, that sounds interesting. I want to talk about your time at BCG and you talked about how you're working within agribusiness, more, but more so the supply chain side. How did that experience you build up and um, help you now? where you are, where you're at now? Because I assume from what I've gained from listening to you speak, I know you have a very extensive knowledge on the supply chain side and and ag business, and how everything kind of fits together. But that process of like building your knowledge up, how did that um, help you? How is that helping you now? And what was the process like of developing that knowledge?
1: Great question. I I would say BCG paid me to learn um, it was working, but it was also like being back in school in many, in many cases uh, and I was working with a number of different types of of agricultural firms while I was at b c g and one of the things I saw firsthand is that many of these companies uh, b c g works with a lot of very well regarded very large big established clients and despite the stature of some of these clients, one of the Things that was a little surprising to me was just how many of their mission-critical processes were running on either emails being traded between people or things that were running in an Excel spreadsheet where you had huge parts of a risk management division that were running on a a spreadsheet. And, And these were things where it's like, this is clearly not the best way to do this. There's a lot of risk in doing it that way. Like what happens if the person that manages that spreadsheet, God forbid, dies or leaves the company, there's a lot of knowledge built into that. And this is what, it's one or two people managing that. And so that opened up my eyes to the that what became Petrichor was this evolution of seeing this over and over and over again both in healthcare and in agriculture of, you had huge parts of your supply chain that were just being managed in a very archaic, outdated way. And a lot of this is there, there's a um, an essay that the investor Paul Graham once wrote um, about this concept of slept blindness, which is that you have uh, people that will go about thinking that a problem is just too big for any one of them to solve. And in the case of a company like Stripe, the payments company, right? every entrepreneur at one point has had, when they launched an e-commerce site, has had to deal with payments. But it was always, well, okay, here are the steps you have to take, and this is too big of a problem to solve, so we're just going to have to put a whole bunch of hours into it. Well, the founders of Stripe said, well, why does it have to be that way? And so that's what led to Stripe. Whereas in our case, it was we'd go talk to these industry executives. And I, I when I was launching Pedricor, probably spoke with thirty or forty different people across commodities. And the feedback was the same, which is well, you know, we we've always done it this way. Of course, it's inefficient, but no one's come along and 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 really offered us anything better. So I guess we're stuck managing our supply chains on Excel and pdf attachments and that and you sit back and and being somewhat of an outsider to the industry I I was just sort of taken aback by that and even coming from the healthcare sector where it adoption is nowhere near that great the fax machine is still used in healthcare so my standards were already pretty low but then you go to this industry that's foundational for our economy, like healthcare, and you see just how low that adoption was, for me, it was saying, well, okay, there is an opportunity here. And so what, what BCG really let me do is is explore what these different pain points are and continue to refine what that problem set was for these organizations prior to launching Petrocor. And since launching, we've continued to refine that, but but basically, you gave me a really good footing in terms of, of intellectual analytical frameworks for how to think through these problems and then getting to see firsthand as a quasi outsider, what were these problems that, that needed solving? Who was willing to pay for them? And um, getting to tinker with some of these ideas on pen and paper for myself prior to launching uh, and so I think it was, it was a really good uh, stepping stone to springboard into uh, going from there into launching uh, a new venture.
0: I totally agree with that. <clears throat> so I was a part of an, ag, I'm, I am a part of an ag business uh, marketing club. And one of the projects we were working on last year was um, pennycress, um, the seed um, that could be used as a, the seed that could be planted and harvested and used as a biodiesel. And our our clients were customers. Our customers were uh, farmers, and we were kind of skeptical about their user adoption of this new cover crop that would be, that could be used. Like, who'd their end user be? So one of the things I learned from that um, from that uh, experience was just ask, put yourselves in their shoes, and don't be afraid to ask them the questions of like, if it's actually going to work, if you'd be able to, if they would adopt it.
1: Exactly, and don't be afraid to ask. And and the more insights you get, especially if they're unfiltered, the better. Uh, Because your your customers or prospective customers will give you a lot of really good data points, especially around things like are they even willing to pay for it, and if so, how much. Uh, And so there's a lot of really great insights you can glean from getting out of the office or getting out of the the classroom and just spending time with your potential customers or potential users uh, especially in cases where uh, you you have a, a core group a really small group that you can use for a lot of, of fast feedback and iteration before launching the venture
0: I think you, you brought this up earlier but um dr- during the earlier parts of your professional arc you kind of worked on a study of developing kind of like a resource hub for ag tech companies that are, were trying to start up in the Chicago area and kind of like the mm-hmm. Midwest. and most people don't know this but the ag the ag industry is kind of a small world like everyone kind of knows knows each other or knows yeah. each other so in your experience of um with your startup how's it been especially with where you're located um trying to establish relationships with other startup companies that are not similar to what you're doing but in the similar vein, industry? Because in the ag industry, um, we don't have, I don't think we have like that centralized location where you could say it's all oh, Silicon Valley, you've got Silicon Valley, like you said earlier on. Yeah.
1: yeah, it's a great question. Um, unlike in the biomedical sciences and life sciences, where you might have a, an incubator that's a wet lab and you might have twelve companies working out of there, right? In ag, it is a little bit more diffuse. Uh, typically, we're not tied to a major city in the same way that a, um, again, in the life sciences space or in the tech space, you see that. Um, whereas it's San Francisco or Boston or or uh, Riley Durham uh, or these various other regions of the country that are known for, or even Houston for oil and gas. Uh, it's a little bit more diffuse. That said, uh, I think there's some really great activities happening in, in within different cities where you're starting to get smaller. I, I'll call them like micro clusters. Uh, whereas in Champaign Urbana, you have a whole bunch that are are down either in the research park there. You have some that are popping up in Bloomington Normal. Uh, in Chicago, there's a great a great group. Uh, It's not a huge number, but um, I'm probably one or two degrees of separation removed from most people working in the ag tech space here in Chicago. And I think the the really fun part is that um, if you go to the center of the city of Chicago and draw a 400 mile line and get a 400 mile radius in any direction of Chicago, you are touching on the vast majority of either large agribusinesses globally uh, or food manufacturers having some sort of presence within that circle, whether that is a headquarters or regional headquarters uh, or a production facility. So while it may not be as, as geographically dense as the Bay Area, I think especially now with, um, uh, with the rise of Zoom and work from home, uh, there are ways that you can make that work and and I think that uh that as we 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 move out of the phases of the pandemic and start to have in-person events again uh there's I think going to be a nice hybrid there and uh I think there's going to be some some continued opportunities for for the midwest to really shine on that front and uh I, I, I'm very bullish on if you're working in ag tech or in commodity trading, uh, in any way, shape or form, and that, uh, yeah. Illinois state is a really great spot to be, uh, due to the concentration of talent, uh, and expertise, uh, and people that have, have built enterprises in this space, whether on the board of trade or around, um, uh, life sciences and that. So it, it's a really fun spot to be.
0: Yeah. Um, I've just got my, uh, one last question before I uh, hit you with my rapid fire questions. Um, you know, being a founder, having, starting a company, especially a startup, um, there is a question, like, what have you learned? What leadership lesson have you learned being a startup founder? Because, um, starting a company is very like you, there, you need to have initiative, but then there's also some people skills you have to build up, but, um, what have you learned in this, in this early phase? Like you st- as you started your company, what leadership lessons? Oh gosh.
1: Yeah. So many good lessons. Um, you set the tone. Others are going to look to you for, for guidance. Um, uh, there, there isn't someone above me that I can put excuses on, right? Like I'm leading it, right. Our employees are going to look to to me and to our leadership team for guidance on things. Uh really the job of the the CEO comes down to a few key things it's uh find money to uh keep the business afloat whether it's from investors or customers hire the right people to execute on on the vision and, and set the vision first and foremost uh and then hold people accountable for delivering on results and that sounds really simple but it, there's so much that goes into to that. Uh, and I think making sure that you can continue to uh, to lead despite the roller coaster of an early stage venture, which you're going to have your ups and downs. Uh, and I think that in particular, um, having the right amount of visibility across the organization and really being in touch with the the challenges that your team is facing day-to-day, especially in the early stage, uh, having that two-way communication there so that uh, there are no surprises. Uh, in, in the enterprise software space, where, where we run on uh, fairly lengthy sales cycles for what we're building, uh, we can't have surprises. Uh, so it's really important for me to be uh, talking to our team Daily and weekly with one on one meetings uh, and being comfortable making decisions that are going to be really, really hard, whether that is moving the company in a different direction or having to fire someone. uh, Ultimately, that is going to come down to you. And the job of the leader is to make decisions that might not be popular, but are going to be in the best interest of the company as a whole. And that is definitely not an easy thing to do. And it's something that requires a lot of maturity to grow into that. It's something that the first time I was a founder, I was not good at that. I've probably gotten better, but I still don't think I'm great at it. But as you grow and as the company grows, uh, you start to have to switch from being still an individual contributor into hiring people that can start to specialize in that. So In your very early stages, you're handling HR and marketing and sales and finance and accounting and all of that. And eventually you have to start handing and delegating pieces off of that to people that you're recruiting and bringing on. And so that job of the founder or CEO is constantly evolving. And it's really the responsibility of the founder to mature with the business and making sure that... uh, they can grow into that next phase of the company as it continues to mature.
0: I think that's very true. Like, I feel like the good mark of the leaders being able to trust like the people who work with you to like um, delegate um, your workload off to them. Like some of the best leaders I've worked under and like the the best times I've led were times where I was able to trust the people I worked with to take on some of my responsibility.
1: Yep. And and I think you, you can definitely delegate responsibility, but you can't delegate accountability. And so you do have to be accountable as the leader, again, to make those decisions, but you have to delegate the responsibility on some of that to make sure that you can be focused on the things that only you can be focused on uh, and that, that your team can be contributing where they need to be uh, to make the business run. Or uh, organization run successfully, so uh, there's a lot of learning that comes with that. Especially because you're you're not you're not dealing with an inanimate object; you're dealing with people, and people are complex. They they have varying degrees of emotion. Um, you need to persuade people. Uh, you have to lead them, and it's not just about managing; it's about leading and and setting expectations. And so, there's a lot that comes with that, and I think that. Uh, to do that successfully, especially it amplified with the um, the dynamic and, and oftentimes stressful nature of an early stage of venture, uh, you have to to be willing to learn and invest in your own self improvement uh, to succeed in that kind of role.
0: Very true. I think um, we'll head into rapid fire questions and wrap it up. Sure. So first question. You're stuck in an island. You can only bring one book, eat one meal, and watch one movie for the rest of your life. What are those three things? One book.
1: Um, oh, good question. Uh, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Uh, meal. Oh, gosh. Um, a peanut butter bacon burger. From Bukowski Tavern, this hole-in-the-wall restaurant in Boston. I'm not a big red meat eater. It is delicious, though, and it's it's a it's every time I I go to Boston for work or for to visit friends, I have to have it. Um, I'd probably say that, but I may reconsider after about seven or eight days of eating them. Um, and then one movie. Um, Probably the Shawshank Redemption or It's a Wonderful Life. I'm going to lead Shawshank with Shawshank Redemption, but It's a Wonderful Life would be a close second.
0: I have to check it out. Um, If you could have dinner with five guests, dead or alive, who would they be?
1: Um, One of my heroes, Pat Tillman, uh, the former NFL player who left uh, his career with the NFL, uh to enlist in the army rangers and was killed in action uh in 2004. uh one of my heroes who i was fortunate enough to meet uh, who passed away last year dick white uh who pushed his uh, uh, uh spastic quadriplegic son in i believe 26 or 30 boston Marathons, uh and it a w- world-class uh runner and triathlete um, Emil Zadopek, who was a uh, Czechoslovakian runner uh, who went on to win a number of gold medals uh, back in the 1950s in the Olympics uh, and was then um, uh, persecuted for standing up to uh, human rights abuses by the communists in Eastern Europe. probably Abraham Lincoln. And then I think a fifth one. That's a good question. Um, I would probably pick someone like a stranger from like, sort of like a choose your own adventure, like someone from a completely prior century that I would completely have no context for, but just show up and like ask them about their lives. Like (laughs) take it from like Malaysia or Djibouti or like Mexico, as long as there's a translator there, like what's going on in the year 1563 or 1272 or something like that. Just to like get the sense of, you know, what's the average person's life like at that point? Um, so I'm sure there's others too, but I've always wanted to just interact with like some random person from a different point in time. And, and just because I think the conversation would be equally, if not more fascinating.
0: That, that, that would be a great mixture. Um, if, you could relive, if you could relive any moment in history or sports history, what would that be?
1: any moment in history. Um, I would have loved to have seen the uh, landing on the moon uh, is one. Um, Sports history in particular. um, 2008 Summer Olympics, uh, the the US just destroying the competition in in uh, China in swimming uh is one that comes to mind uh michael phelps at his prime um and then 2014 uh at the boston marathon i was there that year when meb kaflisi became the first american in several decades uh to reclaim the title of champion Um, i was running it that year and wow was that crazy to be in boston and get to see that firsthand uh, and then probably watching the Red Sox win the World Series, but that after that drought, they win it every couple of years now. So since mm-hmm. since the mid two thousands, that's probably more boring.
0: Good choices. Uh, last question: Where do you want to where do you want to see Petricor ten years from now?
1: I would like to see us working uh, or have operations uh, globally and be sitting in a really integral role of the uh, brokerage of choice for to connect uh, consumer goods companies and value-added manufacturers with any particular ingredient that they would be looking to source from an originator, irrespective of where that that company is in the world right now. Uh, So the more that we can become one of the uh, backbones of global trade, the better. And I, I I think it would be really humbling to be in a position where we can play that kind of integral role.
0: Thank you. Um, after having this after having this conversation, I don't doubt you for a fact that I mean I, I expect that to happen after having this conversation with you. Um, thank you for your time. Well,
1: make us earn it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you for this conversation. It was illuminating, humbling, and um, I learned a lot. Um, Thank you for your time, Steve.
1: Really appreciate it. Thank you, Joe.